Disclaimer, the following program will not cover the entirety of my guest's legendary career, and most likely it will cover some things that have been discussed elsewhere. But that's okay. Listen and learn how we do it on Talking Schmidt. Jacob Rosenberg is here, kids. Blood Wizards. Blood Wizards. Blood Wizards. Hey, it's Corey at Blue Plate, 3218 Mission Street. Come see us. Meatloaf, fried chicken, deviled eggs, Dollar Olympia beers. We're here every day of the week. We got a garden and we got smiles on our faces. Come let us make you happy. But before we start, I want to give a shout out to our new advertiser. John Joseph Van Landingham of Southern Georgia, who has been skating since 1986 and blowing glass since 96. His glass is homemade in the USA, and you can find out more info from him on his Instagram or his Facebook. Someday he may even have one of them OG websites to peep. Anyway, I'm super hyped. He reached out to me um, and stoked to get someone who's down for the cause. So with that, John Joseph Van Landingham, keep it going. And like Albino says... We just need to be free and love each other. <laughs> Hi, this is Jacob Rosenberg, and you're listening to Talkin' Schmidt. Hey, hey, hey. Talkin' Schmidt. I'm already not watching. It's cool. Like, tonight is the night. Damn, this is like the coolest thing I'm ever going to do. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was fun. What do you mean? Well, Christian Fletcher's younger brother. Fuck the Dodgers. Oh, big dog's in. What do you think, Dolan? We on? Talking Schmidt. Alpha Macaroni. Most of these guys, their opinion don't matter. Talking Schmidt, right? It's skateboarding. I remember that. Talking Schmidt. What are yuns doing? Holy shit. Skateboarding homies. No, Schmidt, you can't jump in. What is happening? I'm here for Greg Swift. Yeah! Gregory. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> wi Fi check one, Wi Fi check two. All right, check this out, guys. Uh, it's the day before the 4th of July, and I got a really good one today. I'm kind of over-amped because I haven't talked to this next guest in a while, and we both grew up in the peninsula. This intro hails in comparison to anything, <laughs> but uh, the next guest is Jacob Rosenberg, and uh, I'm hyped, dude. Thank you for joining. Thanks for inviting me on. I know we've been talking about it for a long time, so. Happy to, happy to make the time for sure. Yeah. You were, you, were you born in the peninsula? Yeah. I was born in Stanford hospital. Sick. Uh, um, you know, and I grew up in Palo Alto. I'm actually, you know, at my folks house right now, still the same exact house. I grew up in my childhood and down the street from gun high school and, you know, close to 280. you know? So when, so when, when we'd go to San Francisco and we'd, exit page mill road the ramp would be right there in my childhood you know so yeah. um yeah it's 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 special up here very different from when i grew up but but that vibe there's like a certain energy if you were from here you know some of it's still the same the architecture the redwood trees the you know the different weird spots and the ways that we found you know our connection with the streets yeah uh i got a question for you what came first the yeah. trampoline or the skateboard? Oh man. 
I mean, technically, it's inter- it's interesting. Technically, the skateboard came first, I think. So the trampoline was at the bottom. I mean, you you came over and skated my quarter pipe back in the day. Yeah. Um, the trampoline was at the bottom of our property. You know, we we sort of you know live on the border of Los Altos and Palo Alto. My parents bought this property in like 1969 or 70. And, and then of course, Palo Alto became what it is. Mm. But at the bottom of the property, it was like all dirt. And we had a, a rope pulley from one tree to another tree. And I was a tiny, you know, a little kid and we'd ride the rope pulley. So the rope pulley existed probably when I was like three, four, five. And I first got on a skateboard when I was five at Christian Coop at Christian Cooper's house. Wow. So so the skateboard predates the trampoline, but only by a couple years. Right around the same zone. <laughs> like a little bit after that, I did gymnastics with my sister. She was really into gymnastics competitively. And then we ended up getting the trampoline and that was in the front yard. But my first exposure to skateboarding was was when I was five years old through our mutual friend Christian, who's who's his parents and my parents were kind of deeply connected in the community in Palo Alto. And, uh, you know, he was sort of like a babysitter-esque type of older guy for me. Uh. And, um, you know, I would go over to his house and I'd put on pads and I'd like, you know, have the board stalled and then step down to make it flat, you know? Right. And that, that was the first deal. And was he, I was talking to him uh, earlier and he said maybe he might be one of your first photos that went into like a French mag or something. Yeah. You know, the, the, he was definitely, you know, I, when I started to take photographs, he was one of my muses, right? Like I had, you know, people that I could take photos of and, you know, get good feedback from, they would be okay with it. Cause I wasn't any good. I actually never think I got too great at taking skateboard photos, which is kind of why the photos seem pretty good now is because they're so charming for how not polished they are. Uh But, um, but, you know, I worked at Palo Alto sports shop in 1989 ish into 1990 and Christian was working there as well. And then he left to go to uh, college in Santa Barbara and, um, and so around that time he was around, I was taking photos of him, you know, skating the wave with Chudu, um, Memorex, Fish Banks, and then Mookie's Ramp. You know, right. you and you and you used to session Mookie's Ramp with us at that same time. Yeah. Um, and I think I have footage of all of us there. No and way. so but it, but I was lucky because, you know, like you're you're always really kind of blessed when you have like a godfather like that who's like super core and aggro and like everyone respects them and he always kind of like gave me not a pass but he was always like jake's cool you know like which is a what's back then when it was so gnarly in terms of the levels of you know who was allowed to be cool and who wasn't you know that was a huge huge endorsement I operate on humor. What was it like? Talk about like growing up in that zone and maybe some of your early experiences, like, I don't know, seeing your first pro skater. Was it a demo or did you run into them somewhere? Did someone introduce you or like just kind of key moments before skate camp that 
like you're a kid and you're, I don't know, maybe Christian saw a black heart at a pool. Yeah. I, I don't yeah. know. I mean, you know, so, so like if we go back to 1987, right. I, I mean, 86 was when I started to get into it. And then 87 is kind of when it hits really hard, right. The 87's animal chin, 87's air Jordans, 87's beastie boys, you right. know, so there's this huge just collision of all these things that are like aesthetically pleasing, sonically pleasing. And then, you know, the, the glitz and glamor of pro skating and, and at that time, there was Raging Waters, which yeah. was the most beautiful, you know, boomerang ramp. And, you know, it was in San Jose. And, you know, I had friends who would go and they would just ride the water slides. And I'd be like, just go and be planted watching skaters skate. Ah. So, you know, I, I don't I didn't meet any pros at Palo Alto Sports Shop, but that's obviously where I got my first deck. And then, you know, we would go and on the weekends, there would be public sessions or there would be like a high air competition, you know, or, um, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure if Raging Waters was paying the pros to be there, but mm -hmm. you would go and you'd, you'd see Caballero, you'd see Rob Roskop. Um, and I went during that high air competition, which is either early 88 or late 87. And I got to meet Lance Mountain. And I got oh. a photo with him. He signed my T-shirt. And that was like, you know, I, I think, you know, if you if you like, I didn't get Bones Brigade video show first. You know, I got Animal Chin and then um, Public, no, nah, sorry, and then Future Primitive. And I think, you know, going from Animal Chin and then immediately back to Future Primitive and then studying future primitive because that was so like core culture. Like that's what you thought skateboarding was, mm -hmm. you know, you'd, you'd walk around with your neck cranked like cab and <laughs> you'd, you know, you'd sort of be like, that's, you know, I'm, I'm like trying to be like my idols. So mm -hmm. I think Lance for everybody, but speaking for myself, like there's just that like aloof humble quality that he had because he technically wasn't the best but his five forties were sick, mm. you know, and, 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 you know, and his got his sad plants, like, Oh my God, you know, you just see his photos and there was something more expressive. So I think Lance was always for me, like what a guy. And then going to raging waters, shooting photos of those skaters at raging waters, you know, through this fence, you know, and I have cab doing a big air with the, with the ladder, you know, showing how high it was. And, yeah. and then I have a photo of me and Lance mountain and that, that photo just like sparks me to this day. I still see it. And I see that, like that sense of wonder. And you know, I think that, I think that the beauty of skateboarding is that the act of it itself is, is accessible to the, from the standpoint, like you can watch it. Like you couldn't go watch Steph Curry play basketball unless you bought right. a ticket to a game. Right. And then at that point, you're at a distance. So, you know, you could go and if you waited long enough, you might be able to be at the front of where the boomerang ramp was. And then if you waited long enough, you would see Lance. And, you know, so I, I think, you know, and then if you went up Page Mill Road and there was a session and you stood on the other side of the fence and you weren't allowed in, you could watch Grosso or, you know, all those guys that were skating that on a regular basis. Right. So I think, you know, it felt like you could touch it. And that for me, meeting Lance, and then that next summer in 88 going to skate camp was just kind of like the full, you know, it felt like 
it was possible to see it up close. Yeah, it's uh, what the pixies call the wave of mutilation, right? It was just like too much all at <laughs> yeah. once. It's such yeah. a stimulant. Uh, was that uh, Raging Waters thing? Was that the one that they had the two-page spread of Cab and Hasoy doing doubles kind of simultaneously, like methoding together? I think so. It's the one that Cab had the shirt. That they made a shirt after the contest. It was a high air contest. Oh, right. And it With had the like thing. sneaker footprints for mm. one foot. It was like he did an 11-foot backside air. Right. And it was like cab, you know, high air. And I think we all felt like, you know, cab was the God because he was, you know, the San Jose guy. And, you know, um, you know, if you saw him pushing around, he said such undeniable style. Yeah. Right? I mean, we saw him at fish banks, like shit yeah. like that was, I mean, we were blessed to grow up in an area Dude. where you had access to these guys yeah. that like, yeah. you're just going to stumble into accidentally almost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so how does skate camp come up? Like, how do you even know about, were you at, you're, you're not at Palo Alto yet, right? Like, how do you d decide to go there? So it's interesting. I have a, I have a really close friend growing up named Dave Tullis. And Dave, you know, oh. I, th I think like with everybody, with our generation of skating, we all have these little like role models. And I think a lot of people in skating, they'll talk about, oh, there's this one guy and then he got out of it. You know, or, or there's there's this other guy and then I don't know what he's doing today. Right. So so and and I would say for me, like being the type of personality I was when I was a kid, you know, I, I really wanted to be liked. I really wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be a part of that club, you know, so I was trying hard. And when I was in middle school, I saw David Tullis and his friend, Ryan Donahue, you know, and those guys lived, you know, sort of mid Palo Alto. Um you know, off middle field, off the Embarcadero, Embarcadero Expressway. And Dave took photos. He had a little zine called, you know, Freak Zone and uh, that he was publishing. And he was sick off a launch ramp. He could do wall rides. And, you know, I just kind of glommed on to him and Ryan and, um, and just like that was that year, seventh grade, you know, 87 into 88. And that's yeah. when I saw Animal Chin. That's when I went back and started watching all the old contest videos and Future Primitive and then Bones Brigade video show. And, and uh, you know, and Dave had his family had a little video camera, but he was taking photos a lot. And I grew up around photography. My dad took photos all the time. So it was very comfortable uh. for me. But to dovetail it back into skate camp, he went to the San Luis Obispo skate camp in the summer of 87. And that's a pretty epic skate camp, you know? I mean, Neil Blender was at that camp. I love Mr. Neil Blender, man. There was a gap between like the vert ramp and another ramp and, you know, and, and uh, you know, again, Mike Chernaski was the camp director of that camp. I believe that's the camp that Mike Chernaski met Mike Carroll at. So Dave Tullis had been to skate camp. Dave Tullis was the one that said, oh, skate camp's gonna be at Santa Clara this year in the summer of 88. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is that su that summer of 88 is our eighth grade year. So we're, we're going into high school after that summer. And uh, which, which, so 88, 89, I think 88, 89 was my freshman year in high school. And so, you know, we, we, I learn about Santa Clara skate camp through Dave Tullis, Dave Tullis and I go to that first session together and I, and, 
Dave's a real sweetheart and he really is a, a, like a huge figure for me formatively, but I was talking to him recently as I'm, you know, working on this project about, all, you know, everything from my youth. And he said to me, he said at skate camp, he said, he, you know, he was jealous of me because he saw how social I was and how I connected with all these people and how that just didn't come naturally for him. Right. Cause I kind of realized at skate camp, I wasn't that good. But I, but I met Chris Ortiz and he was teaching me about photography and I met Mike Ternaski and he was teaching me about video. So I saw how, and then, then Ryan Monahan was a counselor and Jim Thebo was my counselor. Jimmy Thebo, Jimmy Thebo! Jim Thebo gave me his board at the end of skate camp. Wow. You know what I mean? And it was <laughs> yeah. an experiment. It was an experimental <laughs> deck that I ended up skating on my trampoline. But yeah. But I think that skate camp was like the first place where I realized like I had the the quality to thrive, you know, in that environment and like and find my place in it. So did um, skate camp bring to you a video camera or did you have one prior to it? The thing that's really interesting about that moment in time is if you just go to 1987 and 1988 Handheld portable cameras are not readily available. Mm -mm. They're around and some people have them. And by the way, we did have them. My dad did this. Uh, it was called the Center for Living Skills. And it was like workshops for people in high school to teach them how to communicate. And he would film these um, sessions that he would have for the workshops that he was doing. And he would film them with a camera that we had. So Dave Tullis and I I think it, it might've been the summer of 87 or the summer of 88 sometime between skate. We like filmed the fake animal chin thing where we like walked into my closet and then <laughs> walked out the Magdalena ditch, you know, and we're like, it was like wallows. So there was a camera, but it was really cumbersome and it had like a, a deck with it. And it was just not easy to film. Right. But at skate camp, you know, th that was another camera that I was introduced to. That was a huge three quarter inch camera that Sloshbach and Mike were filming with. And they let me carry around the camera bag and help them. But it was 89 where Addison Liu, who was, you know, a couple years ahead of me in high school, but only a year older than me, his family had a video camera. So I started, I was a freshman in high school. I met Addison and, and then I had my bar mitzvah at the end of 89 and I got a, you know, a Canon camera for my bar mitzvah when I'm 16 years old. And then, and, and that was the, the camera that I just started documenting that early stuff with. And prior to that moment, I just had basically my dad's still camera and then like a disc camera. And I was slowly starting to take more and more photos. And then, you know, I took a photo of Stephanie person, a female skateboarder that I was friends with, who was friends with Brian Monahan for this French magazine. And I got paid for it. Not good uh, photos. Yeah. You know, but I made a good amount of money shooting a bunch of photos for her pro spotlight or her spotlight in that magazine. And then I parlayed all that into just buying equipment and then just started, you know, amassing all that stuff. Yeah. So your first, your first real camera that you, was yours was that Canon, that white one. Right? Yeah. No, um, no, it was, it was a gray Canon. But it was kind of like squarish. It's pri it's prior. You're thinking of the A1 digital. Oh, it's the version before that. That's regular eight millimeter. Oh, okay. And it's like it's kind of a little bit like an oval, and it had like a little arm grip on the side and a simple little lens, and uh, it was regular eight millimeter. 
And I just filmed a ton of stuff with that. Probably all the original Mookie stuff that we, when we saw each other was that, that one ramp in not, that was off of Marsh Road. That Remember that little spine ramp? Oh yeah, Rockers. Yeah, Rockers. Yeah. I have some footage from there with Johnny. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so, so that, so that was, that was kind of that first camera. And then as I started to get paid for filming and paid for photography, I then bought my next camera in 1991 and the VCR and all that stuff. That's so 91 is when you start getting editing equipment. I got editing equipment before that. So in 90, I start getting the editing equipment and really what I was trying to get was what was called a flying erase head VCR. So mm-hmm. typical VCRs when you press record and then you press pause, unpause, and you record the next trick in a row, mm-hmm. there'd be like that video hit. So a flying erase head, the heads are already spinning. So when you press record, there's no glitches. Right. Um, and there was a skater named Ray Benetow. And Ray Benetow was part of that sports shop crew, but he lived in Los Altos. They lived near Apple Computer. And Ray was making like a local video uh, of all the guys in Palo Alto. He let me start filming for that video because I had my camera. And then he let me start editing for that video. And he had a flying Erasehead VCR. So as soon as I knew what that was, and I saved the money from taking the photos for the magazine, then I... I just, I bought it. And so, so in 90, I bought that. And then at that point, like imagine in 1990, it was such a, you know, archaic time in terms of technology, all my shit looks good. <laughs> like all the, there's music and skating sounds, there's nice. clean edits. So if I gave you a tape of your footage, you'd be like, this is better than anyone else has given me, you know? Right. That's what I was talking to Christian about. I was like, I mean, that was really most people didn't have video cameras or access yeah. to them. Yes. The few people that did have video cameras weren't thinking about editing equipment. They were yeah. just thinking about filming. Yes. Like myself, I got my first camera in 91, but yeah. I, I, I might have got a high eight deck eventually or something, but yeah. I wasn't thinking about putting things together. I was thinking about yeah. giving tapes to people. And yeah. looking back, that was huge. Like to be yeah. able to chop it up and, and kind of polish your work before anyone saw it. There was two things that I think were specific to that time for me and sort of keys to my quote unquote success, which is one longs drugs, you know, 99 cent double prints. Right. Right. So anytime I took photos of you, so if we went, if you and I went to a session and let's say you were sponsored and you were cool and I wanted to connect with you and I wanted you to like me, I'd shoot photos of you. I'd go make double prints. I would get your address and your phone number and I'd send you a letter with all the photos in it and be like, hey, if you ever wanna film again, call me. And I literally did that for every single skater that I was connecting with at that time. And I would, you know, I went to skate camp in, in the Sierras in 89. Mm. And then I met a whole rash of other people at that point as well. So if we were at a session, you know, and we were filming, I would go ahead uh, and, and make a, you know, an edit of our session and I'd send you the tape. Okay. And that's kind of what happened with, you know, Gabriel and Guy and all those, uh, and all those guys was, I just gave instant feedback. 
it was like, you would have my photos and you'd have my number and you'd be like, Oh, this kid's, he's cool. Right. You know, I just didn't care. I was just like, I just, I wanted to be friends. I wanted everyone to like me and I wanted everyone to want to shoot photos with me. How early on uh, do you know Paul Zawanich? So Paul and I would have met probably like when I was in eighth grade. Okay. You know, so 89, you okay. know, I think he's still two years behind me in school. Him and Andy were, were two years behind with Aaron. Okay. And, and Squirt, I think was three years behind. But Paul from middle school, you know, and and he lived around the corner, and you know, he he was, you know, knock kneed, you know, like insane, you know, skater. The first time I shot photos of Paul, we were, we brought my jump ramp to the Temple Beth Om uh, parking lot around the corner from my house. And, I, and we wedged the jump ramp on top of the parking curb so it would be more steep. Sick. And then he cleared the, the, you know, the parking curbs would be spaced apart, uh-huh. right? Because of how they are with, you know, spaces. So we put the jump ramp on one side and then he would clear over the other curb and land on the other side. Yeah. And then we'd put the jump ramp in my driveway and stack garbage cans and he'd, you know, ollie over them and stuff like that. So. Paul's a man. He 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 helped me so much to where I am today. He got me the Thrasher opportunities, all that. Oh, amazing. Uh, did you help film him or something to get on uh, Planet Earth? Like, yeah, I they, think there was footage at Gun and stuff. Oh right? yeah, yeah. The, the, I mean, yeah. that's that that's like the Ternaski amazing thing was so. And I, and I call all of these guys like muses of mine because they were inspiring me, and they would skate hard in front of me. And then I would just kind of go edit those parts together. So Paul and I, he was fearless. Like he was, I'd be like, dude, you should try to frontside 180 down the, these stairs at Stanford. <laughs> and, and I think at that point, like, you know, I'm going to San Francisco and filming Mike Carroll or Greg Carroll. So they know like, Hey, maybe something good comes out of filming with Jake. So we did, a, he did that Stanford. I mean, that part to me, I edited that part with him for one of my little videos that I was making and, uh, and then I was working for Sports Shop, so I went down to the ASR trade show, and uh, Mike Chernaski was down at the trade show. We're friends from Skate Camp. He's still keeping tabs on me, and I bring this VHS tape of Paul, and I was like, hey, this is this kid. I just want you to see see him. So I give him the tape, <laughs> and then, like, me playing with the flower at the beginning, you know, yeah. which was, was on the tape is like in the opening montage of the video. And then Paul has a part that's all my footage basically cobbled together. And then Paul's like getting a box and Paul, like never <laughs> met them, never <laughs> talked to them. And like, I just give them a tape of Paul and I'm like, this kid's sick. And he's all of a sudden in the planet earth video. So that was a common experience where like that happened with Paul that happened with, Addison that happened with Chudu. Um, I'm not sure if it happened with Christian. I'm not sure if my footage with Andy was like with ground effect or whatever the um, mm. Daryl Grogan company was, but, mm. but uh, same with Aaron Curry, you know, and, and, you know, so I, I was just moving very fast at that time and that just happened to, to work out that way. Was who do you think was the first person to Ollie the 10 at Stanford? Was it Orphan? 
Yeah, I mean, I have footage of him doing it. I have footage and stills of him doing it. But in my footage, he's always landing and bailing to his ass. So he would do it and go right to his butt. You're talking about the 10 on the walkway with the 10 after it. Yeah, I have some great photos of that. I mean, that was legendary to us. We would hear about it up in Rowan yeah. City. We're like, dude, yeah. so, this guy. And then we were friends with Johnny, and then Johnny hooked yeah. us up, and then yeah. friends with Phil. Phil hooked us up with Zawanich, yeah. and then pretty soon we're all at Mookie's or Stanford yeah. or wherever. Yeah. That was just the sickest time. There's Team Yahtzee in Palo Alto. That's right. That's they're right. doing demos at that 7-Eleven or whatever yeah. on yeah, Sundays. Exactly. exactly. Uh, it was just, I mean, that was everything yeah. for us because we were just green and new to it yeah i remember being at mookie's and mike carroll climbed over the fence and yeah. i was like yeah. oh my god mike carroll yeah. is at mookie's yeah. like this is insane about to see some smith grinds yeah yeah or, yeah i mean just like seeing these guys that even they were younger than us we still respect them because they were so good yeah you know and it was yeah. just like damn they came down from the city to skate our shit yeah, yeah, that's that was weird, right? It's such yeah. not a far distance. And today's you you would think like people definitely travel for good skate spots. Mm. But you know, with Johnny, I you know, Matt Salcedo, who worked at Skate Shop around the time that Christian did, Johnny used to come to Palazzo Sports Shop, and Salcedo was the one that kind of bridged the gap with Johnny and the Palo Alto crew. Okay. So Salcedo kind of kept bringing Johnny around. And then Johnny, for me, it was that was the same deal as Paul or as Andy, which is, hey, I'm going to San Francisco to go film with Greg Carroll. Do you want to come? You know, and maybe part of it was because I could use the carpool lane. And the other part of it was because (laughs) I just have always wanted people to share in the stoke that I had access to. Like, I always love introducing people to each other who I think would love each other or would have something in common. But back then it was like, you know, I have all this footage and you can see my friends are in the background during these epic sessions, Mm. you know, and they went up with me, but Johnny was another one of those muses who I just ended up filming, 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 filming. And then I had so much footage that by the time I was making the Dogtown video, it was like, well, of course, Johnny's going to be sponsored by Dogtown, you know, and then he ends up, you know, in that video with the full part and cool tricks and stuff like that. Dude, Johnny was a rad kid, man. I, I we yeah. went to Burnside with him. We threw him in the back of our truck and yeah. he, he went up there with us. We spent a lot of time with him. It was sad to hear about everything that happened. Uh, I don't know. Graffiti, man. <laughs> I mean, is it? I don't think it's graffiti. I mean, I, I mean, I, I no, think it's, I know. it's childhood <laughs> trauma. We, you know, me and, and McKenny were always like, it's yeah. the fumes of that pain. <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, that might have, I mean, in all fairness, that could have contributed to Aaron's brain cancer for sure. Yeah. You know, being around all those chemicals for that long. But yeah, you and Tim, like that, I remember, you know, I have, I have that, I have that footage. It's kind of weird footage for me because my touch point with Phil was very different than your guys's, right? Because the moment you guys all click, and bridge the gap to Palo Alto, I'm in San Diego, right? Like I go to San Diego, January of 92. And it's basically 92 to 94 is when you guys all connect and everything modernizes, right? Mm. And, uh, but I have this footage from Palo Alto Skate Park. Tim is there, Tim McKinney. 
Uh-huh. Bill is there and Tim Brouch is there. Ooh. And it's like, I, I go back to that footage and it's just like kind of, a, you know, Tim's Tim, you know, remember his backside lean, you know, he'd bone it out, you know, yeah. like Herc and his body would just crack, you know. They were um, the three, they were three of the best to skate there. It was like yeah. different, but amazing each one of them. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I bet there was no graffiti either. Yeah. There's no, there's minimal graffiti there. Phil is skating in pads uh, and he's, he's skating fine, but not memorable. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't have approached him or I wouldn't have connected with him. He had long hair. I think his like flannel was like wrapped around his waist and he had knee pads on. He was skating like an oversized board with big wheels. Yeah. Not at all street fill. No, he was vert dude right there. Yeah. Total vert dude. And so for me, that wouldn't have been someone that I would have connected to. Whereas Tim, I totally was lasered in on him more street, you know, more right. of that aggre- aggressive, like modern style. Uh-huh. So the Dogtown was that the first video that you actually worked on full video for like yeah, a think, company. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I filmed for useless wooden toys. I filmed for video days. I filmed some stuff for eight street that didn't get into the video. That would have been what came after not the new, uh-huh. but the, the Dogtown video, you know, I remember that was all through Greg Carroll because I was doing all this stuff for Venture, and and Fausto and them were gonna were gonna kill Dogtown. They're like the company's done. Let's make a video to help sell off all the product. Oh, and so Red Dog met me through Greg Carroll, and I just started filming everybody, and then I was like, well, I can I can edit this in my backyard. So you know, I edited it. And, you know, did all the titling and, you know, so that was the first video that I made and it wasn't necessarily as much a vision, you know, as much as just cutting parts together. And immediately, you know, after I finished that, I, I made the think video right after that. Did you film much of the Dogtown, or was it more of an editing project? I mean, I filmed a lot of the guys that I filmed. I mean, you know, I filmed a lot of Cardiel. I filmed a lot of Wade. I filmed Bob Beck. I filmed Johnny. Okay, so you you are definitely behind the camera too. Yeah. Talk about the early I mean, that's kind of cardiel on everyone's radar. That's like yeah. holy shit, this guy's different and special. Yeah. Wade Spire's one of the best mini ramp skaters of all time. Absolutely. Um, like seeing these guys skate and their power and their aggression yeah. and their speed. Talk about like seeing that for the first time. I'm I'm guessing Greg introduced you to Cardiel. Yeah, so all the, yeah, Cardiel was on venture. Right. Right. And so we're, and you know, he was up in Lake of the Pines, you know, which is like on the way up to Grass Valley. And, um, Greg's like, yeah, Hey, let's go. We're going to go film Cardiel this weekend. And so, you know, we get in the car and we drive up there. And what I remember about him was one, his like habitual optimism. You, you know, people use that word stoke a lot the right way. But I think like John embodied, like really embodied a level of outward stoke where it was, he was infectiously positive Mm. and infectiously stoked about everything. So we would see a spot and it'd be like, Hey, maybe you could frontside 180 that he'd be like, yeah, dude, yeah, totally. And then he'd go mock 11 and bah, you know, bail and bail and bail. And, and that so that enthusiasm starts 
building, right? Because that's the one thing that I love about filming and, and being a part of that sacredness of documenting a trick is that you're, you're, you're totally drafting off all that energy, right? So he's going and going and then, uh, and then he'd land it and you would just be elated. And it could have just been a board slide, but because of that aggression and how fast he was skating, you know, you really, you know, you, it, whether it had been done before, it felt like the first time whenever he did anything because the level of speed and commitment and sort of aggro qualities were so high. Right. And I, I it, it was, it, there's a bit of it like a wild animal and not being cliche using that example, but there's an untamed aspect to his energy that was just like, I mean, you know, we all love skaters who, you know, you know, all those bowl guys, Oski and Raven, when like, they're like barely holding on, you're just like, that's the greatest feeling, yeah. right? Is they're barely on the edge and then they land it and you're just like, ah! <laughs> and all of his skating was like that in that era. And then it just was heavy and heavy and heavy and heavy and heavy. We, we skated this one ramp at nighttime and he's just blasting and doing Benihana's just like, Brap, you know, and then to tail, whack you know, and then slamming and then laughing and getting up. And for me, you know, I'm filming all these tech street, you know, low, low gravity ledge tricks. That's all emerging nose bonks, nose grind, you know, and then you go skate with Cardiel and, you know, all of a sudden we're on a loading dock and there's the biggest gap I think I've ever seen. <sighs> and he's getting towed by the car and he 180s <laughs> it. And like, I, I think in that footage, like we're almost all crying <laughs> because it was so like, yeah you know it just felt it felt so resonant you know he he what cardiel does what great skaters do is their effort creates an investment in you as you're watching it mm. and and i think what i love about skateboarding is we all understand making landing a trick we haven't landed even though my scale is like this and his scale is like this yeah we all relate to that idea so you get tethered to their enthusiasm and their effort. And then right. when they make it, you all feel it. And I don't think there's anything like that. I mean, sure, I'll, I'll always use Warriors analogy, you know, when they're down by a certain thing and they make a three pointer, you you feel that. But that tether of watching a session and watching someone land something and, and the style in which they skate, you know, it's the best. That was like a gift to be able to witness that and be a part of it. Did you end up going to Studio 43 at all? I did a couple times. I filmed Wade at huh. Studio 43. Like I filmed his vert stuff for Dogtown, you know, when he's JJ drinking the Rogers. water. JJ, I'm not sure if he was at that session. I filmed JJ in San Jose Okay. for, for the Dogtown video. Um, he was a fun guy. Fuck um, yeah. And I'm trying to remember, but, but it was, you know, I filmed Cardiel skating vert at Studio 43 and then a lot of mini ramp stuff with Mike Carroll and Greg Carroll at studio 43. And then that Wade stuff from the Dogtown video, that backside tail smack, indie tail smack. Hmm. So not intentionally, but looking back, do you think that the Dogtown and the think video are kind of your portfolio for Ternansky? Like this totally. is me proving that I can do something from beginning to end. Yes. And I, I, I want to be with you guys. A hundred percent. Like I've gone back and look at the, I've looked at those videos recently as I've been digitizing old stuff. And I think the Dogtown video has great skating. Like it, it has a lot of great skating that a lot of skaters who don't have a lot of footage. So that yeah. aspect makes it really cool. Yeah. Like karma has a part, right? I mean, I filmed a ton of karma and that dude was doing 
fucking gnarly <laughs> nose blunt slides on curbs. Yeah. Like, and thick too. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. dude, he was doing gnarly nose blunt slide, I think, like front shove it out. Like, mm. so. Yeah, um, it was a sick video. We we watch it all the time. But what I think it, it spoke to us in the in the Bay, right? Because right. it's like, you North know, um, I'm trying to remember the, the, um, the pool skater that I filmed, not Bryce, but there was another, uh, he had a cool name. And he skated that one pool in the, in the East Bay in Corte Madera or something like that. It wasn't Royce Nelson? That was Royce Nelson. Yeah. Okay. Like, you know, like you grow up skating street and yeah. then you go to the pool and you, I filmed, made a 45 second part with him skating the pool. And you're just like, oh my God, like right. this, this guy looks incredible skating the pool. Um, but for me, when I look at the think video, first of all, I, like, I don't think that many videos had that much rap music in them at that time. And that was all like Bay area rap music, like code blue and tracks that we were all looking for. So that mm. felt very fresh. And then everyone on the team, I, I mean, I, I film, filmed the majority of that video and edited the entire video and Greg and Keith are obviously involved in that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, I'm pushing the buttons and I'm, right. you know, and they're saying, you know, let's figure out an opening. And so we do some corny opening and, yeah. you know, whatever, but it's like, but all the personality footage of the guys and that, that's all me like chasing them down, watching the eight street videos and trying to do that. And I, and that video comes out the summer of 91. So a hundred percent, I make that video. I'm shooting on this better Canon camera at this point. I'm shooting on a high eight camera. Right. And I, and, and a hundred percent Ternaski sees that video knows that that's me making that video. And at that point I was filming stuff for him of Mikey, but you know, that's when I go down for ASR that year in the late summer and I filmed Danny and Rick at Temecula high school, uh, you know, for a questionable. And, you know, that's when they, they're focusing, I'm trying to focus my board and Rick pushes me out of, out of the way and focuses my board in the, yeah. in the opening montage. But that was right after the think video. So, so Tanaski sort of like, he knew that I had the goods and I knew what I was doing, you know? Okay. And uh, yeah. What is uh your recollection of your anxiety, stress, nervousness when you're jumping into this kind of caliber stuff at that time, are you so young and green that you're not nervous? You're just excited. Or are you like, shit, if I film this wrong, I'm done. Like, what are your thoughts? You know, I had a couple interesting experiences, right? So, so like I would say I was sort of inoculated from that stress by filming at EMB with those guys and like going on missions okay. and getting stuff. And, and I, I, I mean, I think in my filming career, there's like only two trips that I've missed. And one was a Sal Barbier backside 180 double flip down a seven stair at S at San Diego UCSD. And I felt bad because Sal was kind of struggling to get tricks. And uh, it was similar to that time when I was filming um, Rick and Danny in the fall of 91 kind of before plan B is in full, full swing. Mm. Um, or it's actually, it's going into the, into that, into that zone because the full swing is sort of like October, November, December, January, February, March was, those are the six big filming months. And then every, everything prior to that. But so 
I, I, I felt horrible when that happened, but I never was intimidated. Like, Oh, I, I shouldn't be here. I think it was just blind ambition that I was that young and dumb mm. to not get out of myself. And I also think, and I, I've talked about this a lot, like I loved these guys. I wasn't filming because I want to be a filmer. <laughs> I was filming because I wanted to film them. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, I wanted to be the one that captured them. And yeah. so I think when you're driven by that purity of passion, you sort of go, I'll do anything to be there. And when I'm there, I'm there. And I think that's why a lot of that time when there was like fractious experiences there or not great experiences, it really affected me because I was all in. But like right. the first time I filmed with Rodney, I wouldn't say I was nervous, like weird, nervous around him. I was like, okay, this is my job. I'm a professional. This is this. And then what Mike would bring to my psychology at that time, remember I'm like 18 years old. Yeah. It's like, what's the best angle to film this from? Right. So as he's warming up, I'm going here, I'm going here. And then I'm telling, I'm, I'm telling him, Hey, I'm just figuring this out. Let me know when you're going to go for it. Right. And then he would say, all right, I'm going to go for it. And then it was be like, okay, now I would evaluate the best place to be. And then I'd park myself there or it'd be a line and I'd make sure I repeat, repeat that. And then you just stay locked into that focus. So mm. in that way, I think I was a good companion for them because I was there for them to capture it the right way. And, right. and, you know, and then I end up getting so much great footage and I end up being a part of great sessions. So then it there's no issues. Right. Huh? So like, I mean, for me, EMB yeah. was kind of crazy. Like, did you yeah. not get, did you get totally opened arm or did you get vibed sometimes? Like, no, was I there some open. hazing or anything? I mean, the, the only hazing was just because I was annoying at times <laughs> and, and it wasn't hazing. It was like just picked on. Ah. Right. But I was welcomed at Embarcadero the first time I went there because I was filming the first time I went there. Right. I took photos of people that went into magazines. Okay. You know, like I, I was smart about how I approached getting on these guys' good sides. Mm. So I start filming Mike Carroll. He turns pro in like the spring of 91. And so I pitch, I, I shoot a pro spotlight of him photos for No Way magazine. So oh. I give Mike Carroll eight page spread pro spotlight uh -huh. that I took the photos of. <laughs> so even though Mike is annoyed by me and thinks I'm corny <laughs> or what, or annoying, uh -huh. he's still like, Hey Jake, you want to go film? Hey Jake, you want to shoot photos? And it, it's, there's no resistance. So, and, and so I think, you know, Mike and Greg Carroll had a lot to do with me being brought in that way. The same thing with Rick Ibiseta. Yeah. March 93. That's me. Right. I filmed Rick for useless wooden toys and I film like the majority of that part. And Rick's a big dog at EMB. So I show up at EMB. It's like, oh, that's Jake. He filmed my new deal part. So anyone who thinks his new deal part's cool, they think I'm cool. Yeah. So it, it and then it was like, hey, Jake, film me, you know? And then at that point, there's never a vibe. Anytime I'm there, if I'm down, and Mikey doesn't want to skate, I get up, I go film a line with James. I go film a line with Henry. 
you know? Right. So, so that was kind of, you know, w- w- what the vibe was with, with, with that, with EMB. And, and the other thing is that EMB had different eras that were on really compacted schedules on time timelines. So like the area, the era that I'm in at EMB is like, you know, mid 90 to 93, late 93. And it's so much filming in that time. And then there's a whole EMB era. That's basically like when Mike is on girl and it's 94 to 96 and it starts to be a bust. And then they move over to the peers and all that. I wasn't around at all for that. Mm-hmm. And that was a gnarlier moment in terms of curating and policing who could be there because the skating was so technical at that point. Well, EMB is not there anymore. It, this is not EMB. This Pier Seven, but yeah, it was a smaller zone too. So yeah. if you came in yeah. there, I got in there. But it, it's like you say, it doesn't take long for the word to get out that what you're doing is actually going to be used. Yeah, a hundred percent. When people realize that, they're like, "Oh, what's up, dude?" Like all of a sudden, yeah. I'm friends with Henry Sanchez because I filmed some stuff with Rob Welsh that made it in, and he's like, "I want to," you know. That's exactly and- right. If you look at like the journey, so imagine I'm filming Dogtown. Wingding has a part that looks sick and it's great tricks. Uh. Cardiel has footage at EMB. Bob Beck has footage at the, you know, at the right nearby. And then I'm filming all the think kids, all of them. (laughs) So, and those are all the kids that grow up. Those are all the, that's like the background police. Uh-huh. And then I start filming James for real. Um, but that, but then I ended up going to, you know, the San Diego that summer, but I'm filming, then I'm filming James for real and Henry for real in, in 91. So it's like, I kind of filmed all the right people to, to never get a vibe, even though the vibe was you're annoying or, you know, you're awkward or, you know, and, and they would give me shit in that way, but it was never like, nah, nah, I don't want to film with Jake. So you must have been pretty close with Mike because you're filming with Sam, who's his best friend for Think, too. And you're dealing with Greg, his brother. Yeah. There's, is that kind of your closest network at that time? Yeah. I mean, I, Greg, Car- Greg Carroll is definitely like the guy who kind of brought me in with Venture, which went to Dogtown and then went back to Think. Mm. And so, you know, and then Mike is right there. So I'd film Mike and Greg together do Mike's pro spotlight, then start filming Mike for H street. Then Ternaski's like, Oh, you're, you're up there. Start filming Mike for plan B. And then Mike and I are, are filming all the time. What do you think? Like, I mean, this might be difficult, but what's one of the most important things that you were taught early on? Like maybe Ternaski said, change up your angles. Don't always film from here or like get personality or like, white white balance or something right. that you did you weren't familiar with it you were, it was kind of a game changer maybe i mean i, I it's funny i i i was uh i did a thing with i dabble with jordan maxim i, I love jordan he's such a great kid mm. and uh and we were going through some of my old footage and i specifically was going through this one day with mike carroll and i watched it and he does a backside tail slide on the big block and i shot it on a long lens and this is late 1990, maybe early 91. It's my old camera. So it's, you know, so it's not quite deep into 91 yet. And that I was like, I'm 17 
And again, no one is teaching you how to film skateboarding at that point because no one's doing it. That That's your age that could tell you anything except Mike Chanasky in San Diego. But no one in the Bay Area is like filming skateboarding at a high level who's accessible. Right. You know, all respect to Mac Dog and Tony Roberts and all those guys who sure. who did all that stuff, you know. But but I watched and I was like the that I, all of a sudden it goes long lens. It widens out when he hits the back tail. And I'm like, that's a fucking beautiful shot. And I and so watching that today, I go, I had good instincts. Mm. And a lot of that is Ternaski. He would tell me to get multiple angles. And so I think going into it, I wasn't necessarily like, I, you know, you shoot from the hip. When you start filming, you just film like this. And then you film like this. And then you film down low. And then you look and you walk around and you go, oh, no, this looks dope. And then you're parked there, right? Because back right. then it was like they wanted you to be moving, you know. And I look at a lot of my follow footage and I'm like, it's all front lit. It's my shadows in it. And I'm like, that's just, it drives me crazy. But yeah. But I think that that sense of trying to get multiple angles pushed you to one, make a better edit, which is the subliminal thing that happens when you change the angle. And two, you just start to increase your vocabulary for how you're filming. Mm -hmm. And back then there's no rule, right? If, like if you watch the PAL videos and we're trying to learn about filming skating, I don't think there was much to learn because those were more, you know, documentary and visceral in their relationship to how the, the, the imagery was captured, right? He approached it kind of more in a commercial sense, mm -hmm. whereas you start watching the eight street videos and you start seeing like, Oh, this was low. Oh, this was that. And particularly not the new eight street video, which in my mind is like one of the most important transitional videos in the history of skateboarding where you come out of you know public domain and hocus pocus which are you know kind of chaotic videos in their own ways like public domain i, I think has that all that beautiful high speed tony hawk shit with the sweat and all that but that's like very different right right that's vert whereas not the new was dan sturt and ternaski and a little bit of t-mag starting to be like Oh, let's put a reflector here. Oh, let's follow raking the ground. You know, you think of Hensley's cabalarial over the picnic table. That's not the new H Street video. You think of Hensley's Ollie to nose wheelie. Perfectly framed fish eyes, well-composed shots. Right. So that's 91. And that to me was kind of like the bar of when you saw it, you all of a sudden just reacclimate your brain. It's equivalent to what kids see when they see Bill's videos and they're trying to emulate it. The difference is Bill is shooting that way from a very visceral, emotional place of emotionally capturing those skateboarders' essences. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to replicate that. Whereas, you know, um, Sturt was going photographically, how do I make this look the best it can look? Right. And so when, when you have that moment, where he's making it look the best and celebrating the trick. If you're digesting it, all of a sudden you start making better choices. 
And that's where I see my work start to get like get better. I mean, editing has to help filming, right? Because when you're putting something together, you're like, why didn't I film it like this? So next time you film, you learn from your mistakes. I mean, everything I did was learn from my mistakes. I didn't go to (laughs) school or anything. So it was just this whole like mentality. Um, 91 is also the year that people's favorite video of all time comes out, which is video days. Yeah. Uh, Meeting Mark Gonzalez for the first time. I (laughs) mean, highlight of my life. Was it one of yours? Yeah. I mean, you know, I have such vivid memories of that time because, you know, I had met Guy, Rudy and Gabriel in 1990 at the Quartermaster Cup. Mm. And I did the same thing I mentioned earlier. 99 cent second set of prints, made a video of all the footage I shot with them. I send them a VHS tape. I send them prints. And Rudy writes me a letter back. Dude, Jake, thanks so much for the, you know, we got to have you come to LA and film us. That rips. And Gabriel writes me a letter too. So now uh-huh. I'm like calling those guys. And it, you know, is going towards the fall of 1990. They end up leaving Powell. I see them at the Reno AM finals in August of that year. So now they're on World Industries. Rocco's there. Mike Ternaski's there. So they're all, again, all those guys are seeing me there. I'm shooting for this magazine that I'm getting paid for as a 17-year-old fucking kid who's alone without a credit card. And, you know, like staying at a hotel was very complicated then yeah. for someone underage. And I and then they, they say, oh, you know, you should come down and film us. I think it was during my Christmas break in 1990, I go down and stay at Rudy Johnson's house wow. and uh, land at Rudy's house. And the next day we drive down to Mark's house in Huntington beach and, you know, pull up and there, you know, there's the gongs and we go out and, you know, film a couple days together. And, you know, he was everything that you dreamed of at that time, you know? Um, and, you know, I think emotionally, my experience at that time too, he had a level of sensitivity where he kind of saw that they like kind of picked on me and made fun of me, right? Little fat Jake or whatever, you know? And, and again, that's just normal for kids at that age to do. Right. Mm. But he would stick up for me a little bit. Uh. And that always like made a huge impression on me that he stuck up for me. But, you know, we, we went and filmed at Kenter with Jason and Gabriel and Rudy and Guy and drove all around LA and skated Century City, uh, you know, and he's in that Hatikva shirt and, you know, all that, all those clips, you know, from those sessions. And it was just like, it was also really cool because it, they felt kind of like a team driving around and filming them. Yeah. And, Small and then, group. Yeah. And then, and then my tapes kind of crazily made their way back to me, you know? So I had like blind tapes that I filmed. And then one day Ty is like, Hey, I was that girl. And I saw, is this your handwriting? And my raw footage, you know, found its way back to me. You know, there's still one tape from that time that I don't have, but, um, but that footage came back. And then when those guys were coming up to, they came up to the Bay area and then they stayed at my house. It was like, Oh, we'll stay at Jake's house. So they stayed at my house and it was, you know, it was guy, Rudy, Mark, Spike, and dune oh wow spike spike and dune are staying in our back house our cottage uh-huh 
and Mark and Guy and Rudy are staying in the front house. And it's like the Gons is at, you know, at, <laughs> at my house, you know, and they're in this Volvo station wagon. So, so it's just like, just even recounting it, it you know, I, I just feel like, you know, I did something right at that time to put myself in, you know, in those positions. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I think like what you said earlier was interesting to me about just being that guy at skate camp that wasn't afraid to approach people and was yeah. very social. Yeah. I always tell kids that when they ask me about things, it's like, you got to be able to sit in a van with people yeah. that maybe yeah. you don't like and get along and just yeah. go on trips together and, yeah. and not be the guy that everyone hates and wants yeah. not, never to do anything with again. So yeah. that's important is to be able to mix with these type of people. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's, there's an interesting thing with filmers and I've met, you know, some, some younger generation filmers and, and seen this same quality. When I say younger generation filmers, I mean, filmers today, right? I think that filmers share a common thread of this level of insecurity about belonging to skateboarding because they're not great skaters. You know, not everyone's Mike Manzuri, you know, like, yeah. not everyone, you know, has that pop, you know, not Ty, you know, even Greg Hunt, like, you know, those yeah. guys are rad skaters for sure on their own right. But I was not a good skateboarder. And um, I think it's not the cliche imposter syndrome, but there is a little bit of something about, you know, am I going to get kicked out of this, this experience because I'm really not as good, you know, and my value is kind of when I film something and, and I've got to film it right. So I think there's a little bit of that. You take on a lot of abuse, you know, as a filmer. And I yeah. think that that, that insecurity is, is a little bit more pronounced and you accept a little bit of that abuse a little bit more, right? Because you know, if you can take it, that means they can dish it out and they can vent on you, which th they will enjoy having an outlet to get some of that aggression out, you know, but at a certain point, that's not healthy. Right. You know? And that that's what happened to me in a very, you know, short period of time when I got, you know, sort of got out and got away from it, it was just that it was like, really toxic and really like, fuck you. Like, I'm here all the time, not complaining, you know, and this is how we get treated. Like, this doesn't make any sense, you know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's what my experience was too, was just like you said, basically Jake Phelps told me this, we are fans of skateboarding. Yeah. What does fan stand for? Fanatic. It's short for fanatic. Right. We wanted to be part of skateboarding and yeah. we weren't as good or good yep. enough to be the pro or be that guy. So we saw other avenues to stay within it and we yeah. would do anything we could to hold on. Yeah. 100%. But then you get to a point where you're kind of like, and not to be cocky or anything, but you're like, dude, I'm pretty good at what I'm doing and I'm helping you out. Like yeah. quit being a dick to me. We've spent years together now. Yeah. Like yeah. the, the initiation's over, bro. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I think a lot of that also has to do with youth, right. Mm -hmm. And maturity. And so the, the era that I'm a part of, everyone was the youngest that they ever were with the success that they had. So my experience filming with Mike is going to be different than Mesa's experience or than Ty's experience. Right. And everyone's going to have a different shape and flavor of that experience. But, you know, you, you also, 
you know, this, the psychological like Petri dish of skateboarding is utterly endlessly fascinating, but like, you know, you're talking about like complete arrested development with kids, the most of which, you know, did not finish high school, had no like social reinforcement on a mainstream life level. And they sort of are treated like superstars from the moment that they land an amazing trick. And for some of them, it's really young. And so, you know, I do have a lot of sympathy for the fact that, you know, skateboarding cultivates talent and, and there's an element of a huge element of resilience that's gleaned from skateboarding, but skateboarding doesn't necessarily cultivate the ability to, to live a successful life. And I don't mean that in a corny way. I mean that in a simple way, like mental health, like taking care of yourself, Yeah, you know, so, so you can like achieve all these amazing things and you can be a part of something amazing and you can, you know, have celebrity outside of movies or sports that we attribute celebrity to, you know, but you may be totally socially inaccessible on a mainstream level and just completely unable to be kind of successful in life for yourself. And I have, I have a lot of sympathy for that. When I look at skaters who came up young and they struggle to kind of figure out what they do when their body starts to change or when, even when that passion and drive starts to change, whereas filmers kind of have a little bit of a pivot outlet at that point, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Because you've been doing a quote unquote job skateboarding to a lot of people we know it's a job, but outside of skateboarding, people think it's just having fun or whatever. Yeah, and yeah. so that's what like a lot of us have been talking about is like the similarities to skateboarding and big time wrestling where like mm-hmm. you just destroy your body. Yeah. You don't have much of a platform for anything else because this is all your passion. And then when you're done, what do you do? And yeah. you're done at an early age. You ain't ready to yeah. retire. You didn't yeah. make enough money to retire. That's so right. now what? And yeah. those are the, I, I'm right there with you. I, I'm so, it's it's heartbreaking to see yes. some of these guys that were your idol begging yeah. for money or like not knowing what to do with yeah. their life. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. dude, you were this guy. Yeah. And, th- and I think there's a lot of really valuable conversations that are starting to happen now. And, you know, um, not advocating one way or, or another, but like the moment skateboarding's in the Olympics, n- you can start having a conversation about, you know, healthcare within the skateboard industry. Right. Right. The moment things get elevated to a certain level, it's like, well, maybe skaters should have, you know, health insurance and maybe they should have, you know, 401ks that the company set up for them because they know they're, you know, maximizing a certain portion of that person's life for that person's benefit and the company's benefit as well. But knowing what we know about that commitment to skating at that time, maybe there are things that should be done universally to try to help people have a leg up for when their body doesn't respond the way, you know, that it should. And that's why I think, you know, when, you know, I love watching all the stuff that Frankie Hill's putting out. Old dog, new trick, too legit to quit. This is Frankie Hill here on Talking Schmidt. You know, he kind of disappeared and everyone's like, what's he doing this? And, you know, he's got his kid. He still lives in Santa Barbara. He's a successful guy, you know, has a job. And it's like, you know, so not everyone can achieve that balance. And there's a level of humbling that has to happen, you know, to, to get balance. And the question is sort of like, how 
humble are we comfortable with? Right. You know, and because we're so obsessed with how we appear to other people, right? You know, skateboarding is so like, am I core? Am I not? Am I this? And that. So there, there is a, a pivot there where you kind of got to em- embrace who you are. And, you know, I love the fact that some skaters have jobs and are pros. That's pretty rad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that seems like a recipe for success today. You know, yeah, it's like Phil. I mean, I always use Phil because he was my muse and he was going to Berkeley and being a pro skater. And people are like, what are you doing going to school? You should be going on tour traveling. He's like, I need to do both. And it's like that foresight isn't in everyone. A lot of people come from divorced families, whatever it is, this and that. But yeah, it would be I think it would be so great. But I think it goes back also to the thing that you and I discussed, which is everybody wants a piece so bad that they're willing to sacrifice or do things for, you know, it's like you work for us where it's like, I know I'm stoked, you know? And at some point you need to get to a point where it's like, this needs to be an even relationship. Yeah. That, that thing, right. We relate to this because of the time that we were like indentured servants to skateboarding, but that thing of like just participating at a high level and that being rewarding enough, you know, ultimately in the long term, isn't rewarding enough. It's rewarding for the soul, mm. right? You know, I mean, I'm eternally rewarded for the tenure that I committed everything to. Um, but I'm also like deeply tethered to it. <laughs> you know, as much as I want to like move on from all that stuff, it's like still there. It's always there. Yeah. You know, but. Yeah, it's just an interesting, it's not an obligation, but there's this innate thing when you grow up with it, that when you have the opportunity to be a part of it, you do everything to be a part of it. And and there's not enough, I'm using this term slightly not the way that it should be used. There's not enough education about how to be a part of it in a healthy way that protects you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And like, why would the businesses teach you that? Because it's to their advantage for you to be that you, ignorant. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, you know, but but again, you know, skateboarding functions through its dysfunction, right? It, right. All, it, all, it, it always sort of has, you know. But I think that in the next, you know, five years in this part of the cycle, I think, you know, given the way that younger kids look at their own self-respect or, you know, the level of narcissism in the younger generation is higher than it's ever been. And, you know, and that, that's not like a criticism. That's just like when you grow up taking selfies of yourself and that being normal in your vernacular to take photos of yourself before you take photos of the world, you inherently like experience the world with you in it. Where when we grew up, we looked out and it was what we saw in the world that we thought was of value. And so I think when you have that innate narcissism that's like embedded in the fabric of the culture, maybe this generation will find a way to reprioritize their own balance and health that kind of changes things as, you know, as a byproduct of that, you know, somewhat negative aspect. Totally. Yeah. It's, I mean, the same thing though, every time, right. It's like when you were young, you, you heard the older guys say, yeah, yeah. yeah. In my day. And you're like, I never yeah, want to yeah. be that guy. And then you get yeah, older yeah, yeah. and you're like, in yeah. my day. Yeah. But, right. <laughs> um, dude, the plan B videos, 
<laughs> are all time. For my generation, for me specifically, yeah. I didn't watch any video more. Uh, yeah. I don't know which one, questionable versus virtual. Yeah. They, they were both, but questionable was the first and 92, right? It, yeah, it April, April of 92, yeah. So it comes out with the new squad. Yeah. And an unknown Pat Duffy. Yeah. Who literally puts handrails yeah, yeah. onto yeah, yeah. radar in a way no one knew was possible. Yeah. Uh, talk, I mean, fuck, dude. What was the first, <laughs> like, Pat Duffy lives in NorCal, and, and he just, yeah, and we don't know about him, and all yeah. he's got a full part? Like, that couldn't he, happen today. No, I mean, he was an A Street skater, right? He was on H Street, and Mike was tracking him. Keep in mind, so the video premieres April of 92 in San Diego. The video is in stores June of 92. Okay. His part, except for the 50-50 and the backside 180 at Sports Arena, was done in... November of 91, maybe October. Bro, just just wait. So Mike was filming him, was going on these missions, was super inspired at what the part would be, and he edited, edited it together. And whenever anyone came down that was sort of in the sacred circle, he'd be like, oh, you want to see Pat Duffy's part, you know? So I remember, you know, going and seeing – Pat's part in that fall of 91. And I just remember being, <laughs> I, I like, I, but the feeling was, I'm so stoked for Ternaski because this is kind of his baby project. And this is, and this is to this kid. And you're, you know, you, you, you're, you're just seeing the future. So, we, so, and, and like I said before, right, everything was acclimating and like shifting gears in my head towards my own bar of performance as a filmer and as an editor. Sure. So when I saw that, I leveled up. I, it, was, it was instantaneous. It was like, oh, this is what we're doing. Like <laughs> you first, you're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to go down to San Diego. I'm going to film for plan B. I've already been filming Mikey, but now I'm going to film Rodney and Rick and Danny and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Take a trip to Canada and film up there. But once you see that part and you acclimate to like what the bar is, you're just like, oh, yeah, 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 we got to do, we got to. So then you're filming and you're like, oh, maybe you should backside 180 that. But why don't you try this triple set? You know, it's a, it's a conversation for another time, but I have like some very deep and scholarly thoughts about the formation of skate video parts. And, you know, in in, in my opinion, it, it it goes, you know, the, the, the origins are sort of in Shackle Me Not and Hocus Pocus. You know, PAL videos have parts, but their, their structure and their presentation is nothing like what Pat Duffy's part is in questionable. But Pat Duffy's part comes from not the new 8th Street video and uh, the Life video, Soldier's Story, um, which were Ternaski and Sturt collaborations. And mm -hmm. Ternaski and Sturt, you know, collaborating on not the new 8th Street video as well. So I think that, that, that Pat's part is like, I think it should be in the Smithsonian as a document of of what started the modern wave of skating because of the cinematic presentation 
because of how it emotionally made you feel to watch it. Um, the soundscape. Um, and, and, you know, it's, to me, it's, it's a perfect part and it's like, that's it. Like, you know, and, and, and that came from Mike finding this kid, you know, whose dad died. I think he wore black, like all the time. That's why he's wearing black and all that stuff, I believe, Mm. you know? So, so he's like a child of trauma. Again, one of these kids who changed skateboarding, who came from trauma and, you know, he expresses himself on a scale that we've never seen before. And he would just go, they would just go on missions and just, you know, and I was fortunate enough to start filming him. Him and I filmed a lot for virtual, right. but for questionable, you know, the majority, I have some EMB lines with him and stuff, but the majority of that stuff was done. I'm good friends with Pat now. Um, yeah. And I joke with him. I'm like, if you could go back in time, the Terminator yeah. style, would you have changed that? Because did you put the bar too high? Nobody did Johnny Cash like us. Like, right. how do you follow that video part? Yeah. You know, well, you, you then, do a lip slide on, the, <laughs> on the, the, the Marin male. That's the gnarliest thing I've ever seen. That lip slide on the single kink rail yeah. into the street at the uh, Marin post office. Yeah. <laughs> the, I, 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 he's like, I want to do that. And you're like looking at it. And it's like, you don't say no. And though the slams that he had were some of the gnarliest slams, but that's what he, he, he had no choice. Yeah. I love the behind the scenes, uh, back lip in the rain too. Like just yeah. the story about that and everything. And yeah, I mean, Pat, Oh my God. He, yeah, he deserves everything. He's, he's absolutely, even if you don't know that he's your influence nowadays yeah. skating, he's your influence. And, 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 you know, with all due respect to all video parts in that way, and I, I love all skate videos and they all affect me in different ways, but like, you know how the NBA, go, you know, renamed all the trophies this year, mm. right? So, you know, the, the, you know, the all-star game MVP is the Kobe Bryant trophy right. or whatever. Yep. Yep. If you were going to give a video for the best part of the year in skateboarding, it would be the Pat Duffy trophy mm. because that was the part that changed all of it. And that's mm. not to say that, you know, Rick's part in questionable, which is such a great vibe. And I personally love it for a multitude of reasons. And it's mm. an incredible part or Gonz's part in video days, but Pat's part is that is the modern skateboard template. And it hasn't really changed from, from there. And it wasn't that before then. There was nothing. The closest thing to it was Sean Sheffy's part in the life video. Yeah. But it was too antiquated and it was kind of cobbled together. So Pat's part was the perfect presentation, soundtrack and tricks and everything. But, but you know, that's that to me is like the way to, to contextualize that. Yeah, it's such a special time. Uh also in that video, Danny Way skating street like a maniac. Yeah. Like yeah. you're like, yeah. holy shit, this is the best vert skater. And he yeah. can skate street like with the big dogs, like back yeah. 360 down double sets and whatever. Yeah. You're like, that was all, that was again, like, so I was watching some of that footage recently too. And what that is, is Rick Howard staying at Danny's house when he was coming down from Canada. And so Danny always wants to impress impress and be at the bar of everyone else so danny's looking at duffy and duffy 50 50s the rail <laughs> danny's danny's like i'm gonna board slide it 
And Danny did legitimately get onto it for a lip slide. Yeah. But I think it's too much of an over when you get on the lip slide. It's too gnarly because the way to do it would be to stay on the inside of the rail. And mm. then that's just death on that rail. Yeah. The outside of it is the ice plant. So the ice plant's not too scary. But if you get on the outside, you're never going to make it through the kink. Uh-huh. So it was just the way that that setup and the approach was you come around a corner and it's a hard turn. So anyway, but he was trying to live up to Duffy. So you have him skating, you know, with Rick, you have him looking at Duffy, then you have Carol and Rodney. And in my opinion, like street Danny and virtual reality, which we filmed, you know, I got, I filmed the majority of his part for his vert and street in that video. That to me is like, God, his 360 flips are perfectly caught. You know, everything is just crisp and clean is, you know, nollie flips and all that stuff. But he was skating fast in street and he was super ambitious. And then, you know, he would do something on vert. He still kind of embodied that old McTwisty varial 540 vibe in questionable. Whereas in virtual, it was just all insane, you know, technical tricks that no one thought was possible. Right. You know? Yeah. A nollie flip on a on a vert ramp, get out of here. Yeah, I oh. mean, it, vert dying killed a lot of skateboarders that could yeah, yeah. go over the street. Yeah, and Danny was like, "It ain't killing me. I'm two yeah. times skater of the year, fuckers." Like, you know, what I mean, <laughs> I know you got a relationship with him and whatnot. Yeah. Like, is it's hard probably to say, but he's got to be in the top three all time, right? Without a doubt. I, yeah, I think, he might be top two. He might be top one. I mean, I think it's it's tough, right? Like those top lists, you understand when people in those positions say that that's the stupidest thing in the world. Yeah. But it's like, I think it's like, what what is what, you know, it's like, what's the top of it for, right? Because if it's for cultural impact, you know, Tony Hawk is, is number one. Sure. You know, Tony Hawk has built more skate parks than anyone else in the world. Tony Hawk has done more to open skateboarding to the world than anyone else. He has a video game that put his name out there. So in terms of amplifying the activity and culture of of skateboarding, Tony Hawk is the guy. So then if you go into impact in skateboarding, you know, Mark Gonzalez, who's, you know, a a Neil Blender descendant is, is that perfect mixture of creativity, um, in innovation, you know, and, and, uh, and style and expression. And then, you know, Rodney obviously invented all these technical tricks. So how can you even have a conversation? You're, you're, you know, you're Mark and Rodney for sure. Yeah. And then if you go just beyond that, you go, okay, well, but Danny skated street, skated vert, did the super ramp, did the mega ramp, you know, um, and while you may not love, or, you know, connect with that skateboarding. When he did the 360 flip over the channel on the mega ramp, that's like, he's going 40 miles an hour, <laughs> 360 flipping, catching it, landing in the thing. Like that's pretty, that's kind of one of the gnarliest thing that's ever been done. And he's a beast. Like he did the great wall of China, like with a broken yeah. body, you know? He's- yeah. But that's, I, I, I sort of feel like that's his process too. You know, Danny is like a self, you know, he, he beats himself up to get to this, you know, flow state where he creates the obstacle that he has to overcome, you know? So he, he, it's, it's a total pattern and having, you know, worked with him and making the film on him, you know, it's like, I saw that it repeated his whole life, 
you know, when, and in, in his early life, all the adversity like happened to him. And in his later life, he kind of created that adversity, which I think a lot of people create the obstacles and the turmoil that they then have to push themselves through that gives them that sensation of being completely alive in the process of doing it. Mm. But to go back to it, it's like Mark, Danny, Rodney, like, yeah, it's, it's hard to say. And then, and I think when you get in that sacred Trinity of those three guys, then it's like, if you look at anyone else, you go like, who's really outliers. You, you kind of like Dylan reader starts to like really become interesting in that conversation because he was so versatile and he was so his own guy, mm. you know, and every, and it's opinion based a lot. Of, I to- mean, to- right. Like hundred percent. You're not, this is my gone's or whatever. You're right, right, right. is my not yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of like a lot of that to do. And then style is subjective. I think, I think totally. style matters. Absolutely. But sometimes style that you don't think is great is like, I mean, Danny yeah. Sargent might not have had the greatest style, but I thought he did. Like he, he was he, like, totally, totally. You know right. I mean? Yeah. Well, it's like you, you also remember someone's style and then you watch footage and you're like, Oh wow. They were kind of chapped, but there was something about it. Yeah. And I think that's what I love about skateboarding now is the female skateboarders that are coming onto the scene innately have a different style than men. Right. And the female skaters are so sick. And it, it's like when the Olympics, you know, happened, I, I wasn't that interested in watching men's skateboarding. I was super interested in watching the women's skateboarding Same. because there's just a different level of engagement and rooting for them and seeing that. And I, I sort of feel like, you know, female skating embodies that spirit that probably is closest to what real skating is or was. Because they're they're still rebelling, they're still outcasts, they're still like pushing through this fucking male dominated thing. Like that's mm-hmm. skating, right? You know, they're they're doing what we thought we were doing, you know, thirty years ago. Hell yeah! Yeah, and the ABD rule is not in effect. Exactly. I filmed the full part with Lizzie, and it was so fun. Yeah. It was like one of the highlights of my life was just like yeah. feeling the energy and the the stoke that they have, which is different from a male's, just all of that. And like the non-competitiveness where it's like embrace instead of like, yeah, no, you're going to take from me. Yeah. And by the way, that's that that spirit is like a Cardiel DNA essence, right? Sure. I never saw Cardiel as being competitive or looking at anyone else. Uh-huh. And that's like those charm of, of those skaters who really are kind of like marching to the beat of their own drum, right. you know, that, that there, there is always something really attractive about being around that energy. You sort of can feel that that person, you know, is really special. So how often are you back up North? You're still in LA, right? Yeah. I live in LA. Um, you know, and I, I come up North, you know, sometimes in the summer I'm working on a, a hieroglyphics project. So I've been coming up doing interviews and then, you know, I'm usually up here around the 4th of July and, you know, um, and then Thanksgiving and, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't come up that, that much, but, you know, I, I mean, anytime I'm driving through San Francisco, I, I pass by Justin Herman Plaza. It still kind of, you know, has that, that same allure. There's uh-huh. still bricks that I know intimately, you know, that are still in the ground there. Yeah. But, there's just more tents. Yeah. Well, we have that in LA too. So <laughs> that's not, that's not unfamiliar. Man, who uh, whose idea was the virtual reality opener with the multi-screens? That was an idea that Mike and I had. Um, it's, I, I think it's at this point impossible to attribute it 
to him or me. It was us. Uh-huh. Um, and what happened was, you know, we, we had the video and we had so much stuff that wasn't going to get in the video. And we remembered the opening from questionable and how we did put some tricks in there and how people responded. And we originally said, let's put a split screen. Let's cause it would, the conversation would went something like this. How do we fuck people up? Like, let's just fuck them up. Like it's called virtual reality, right? It's like, let's just fucking immerse them in skateboarding. You know, we wouldn't use immerse, right? That's not, that's a word that's so new now, immerse. Yeah. So we're like, how do we just fuck them up? And it was like, well, now let's do fucking, dude, let's just do two screens of everyone's fucking best tricks. And then we were like thinking about how that would look. And it was like, fuck it, dude, let's do two and then a third. And it was like, okay, perfect. And then I said, okay, what I will do then is I'll synchronize all of those screens. And so I, you know, went through all the transfer tapes and I would either have, okay, then it'll sync up and be a rail spot or it would sync up and be the same spot or it would sync Mm. up and be something. Or we had like a Pat Duffy line in Pacific Beach and we broke it up with other clips, Mm -hmm. you know? But I also was able to put like Paul Zuanich in there, Ronnie Bertino in there, you know, Jerron Wilson, like all these skaters that I loved because I was editing that, I was able to like have my little Easter egg. So Paul's, you know, no slide, you know, Yeah. Yeah. It's no slide 360 shove it out, uh-huh. you know, um, got in that opener, but it was really so the desire to, to just fuck people up in that first viewing experience. And we, we put that Easter egg in there, which is still my favorite thing, which is, it was called virtual reality, a video for the senses. And, and we go virtual reality, a video for the senseless. And then it's the first trick. And it's like, that's like my favorite Easter egg um, with Danny's, you know, Nolly down Carlsbad. But it was such a reaction, I think, to Mike's and my excitement towards how do we match Duffy, you know, from questionable (laughs) with an opening. And it's like, oh, let's just because that's that was the bar. Right. Right. Of an opening. So we're like, let's just make the opening. And we knew it was coming out on VHS, so people would have to watch it three times. Uh-huh. So it, it, there was a design and a thought to it. And I, I, I'm like, as you know, super nostalgic, and I keep everything. So I still have my notebook with all my notes about what tricks go on what screens at what time. And oh, okay, yeah, and all yeah, that like stuff. the map or whatever of it. Oh yeah, yeah, because yeah. because you know I had the the ledger and because that's that opening is three tapes with the same song underneath and the same one trick at the beginning and then timed out to the next trick, right? Ooh. So insane. One, you know, one one tape would have the nolly and then a gap because the nollie would be full screen and then the next trick would come in and that's when you would fade that in. And then the next tape would, would be a delay, but the song would be in the exact same position on all three of those tapes. Whoa. Right. Because it's that's all big. edited linearly. You just influenced somebody. It is before media 100, like, or oh, anything. Well, yeah. Yeah. This is all. Yeah. It's just know, tape three quarter tape. Inch stuff. Yeah. That's why it's crazy. Like now you could replicate it digitally yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty easily. I think that's why 
not I think. That's why those videos are so great. And, you know, the PAL videos included, video days included. Yeah. Because the decision making was really arduous. You were really like, I mean, I, I, I've again talked about this a lot, but I, you know, remember cutting Rick Howard's part of virtual reality. And I started that part like five to eight times to find the rhythm. Wow. Of what, of, of how it would flow. Mm-hmm. And the way that you find the rhythm in that day, you would, start editing and putting the tricks back to back to back to back. And then you would just feel it and you'd go, okay. And so I think when you watch those videos today, watch the first 30 seconds. And that is where the part was born because it's kind of, that's where we're as editors, that's where we're finding our pace and our connection to it. Mm-hmm. You know, and in certain instances, like Mike Carroll, you know, we'd break it and put a new track in in the middle to kind of, you know, give you that, you know, that thing, right? Yeah. The damage video was similar, like it was tape to tape. Yeah. It just forces you to make hard decisions and to really think. But then the moment you commit, then you do it. You know, so, you know, when we were editing those videos, we weren't editing for months we were thinking for months and then we'd be in a very compacted highly creative zone where we were very critical you know for for weeks right and then and then it would be done and it's funny but like why do those videos stand the test of time you know and it's like the music the skating the the momentum of each of those parts well, yeah, I mean, for sure, opening a video with Ozzy and stuff like that is like... But it's Carmina Barona before Ozzy. Which is a song that I wanted to use for a part. That opera song, we wanted to use Carmina Barona because it's so dramatic. So like when that, when we found that Ozzy, you know, that live, you know, uh, tape, or CD that we used, it, one of the reasons we got there was because the Carmina Barona was in there. Mm. And it added this level of like cinematic thing. And like the live, the crowd. Like. Dude, exactly. <laughs> and that's that's what I'm saying. Like that was, it was just totally by design. Like yeah, we're just going like, and what happened during the premiere? People were just yelling at the fucking screen. People were like, fuck you. Oh, are you fucking kidding me? Because, you know, no one is expecting. And then they're like, you watch that one. That'd be a good drinking game. How many things you could pick out of it? Because it's exactly. You call it out. Yeah. 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 Well, shit. I mean, I I could sit here and talk to you forever. Uh, I'm wondering maybe real quick how you basically did your past help you with what you're doing today? I mean, it's something I reflect on all, all the time you know, that, that time in skateboarding, because I, I come back to it more than any other time in my life. Yeah. Um, and I'm certainly reminded of it, you know, if I meet people socially and, you know, or I'm doing some job at some point, they're like, wait, are you the Jake Rosenberg or Jacob? You know, I, I sort of tend to go more by Jacob now than Jake. Mm-hmm. And that was maybe a little bit by design when I felt like I grew up a little bit. Okay. Um, but I, I think that what, I took from that time that I think helps me today is a real like devotion to the work. And and it's why, 
I think, you know, real skateboarders who were entrenched in skating, who've transitioned to craftsmen or craftswomen, craftspeople who, you know, are cinematographers or editors or directors. I mean, I think one of the reasons they have the success or the, the work ethic that they have is because I think when you, when you do that thing that we've done, you're all in and, and, and you get that feedback and that reward, right? You were there for timeless skateboarding. You were there to witness, a, a, a you know, an incredible skater in Phil to share in his experience. And for the rest of your life, you'll go, I was there for that. And whether that matters to five people or a hundred thousand people, you you were there with a level of commitment, and you knew that it was that was that commitment and that passion that put you there. So I think that what what I've gleaned and what I take with me from that time is sort of a relentless commitment to the work that I do. And I think as I've gotten older, I would say I've become more emotionally available to put more of my deeper feelings, um, subconscious feelings, um, you know, some of the emotional underpinnings of who I am and my own form, form formation as a, as a human and a grown-up and, and a self-aware person and tried to put that into the work that I do. So when I'm shooting something or envisioning something, there is a level of absolute presence in that process mm. that makes that makes it rewarding and usually results in work that resonates. Right. So I, th- I think that skaters have an ability to tap into passion. And so I think I always go back to that accessibility of passion and use it. There's no scale of passion more than skateboarding. Maybe cinema and skateboarding are like right there. Mm. You know, they're like the two pillars that really formed me and like I – I, rem- I, f- I can feel my love for it, right? Like if I'm driving, you know, up Highland and I see someone at Hollywood High, I, w- I really, you know, sometimes I have just pulled over and I'll just watch, you know, but like I feel it right away and yeah. I get stoked, yeah. you know? So so I think really tapping into that passion and, and using that as leverage. Because a lot of people go, how do I, if people are filming and they're in these things and they see other people who've had careers, how do I, how do I do that? And it's like, well, the way you do something different is the same way you did the thing you did, which is you find how you love it and you give yourself to it Absolutely. and then it rewards you over time. Yeah. And I, I think also it's one of those things that, I mean, I haven't done anything else, so I don't know for sure, but I think skateboarding is rare that what matters to me most is my peers opinion. I don't care mm-hmm. about the hundred thousand people. If right. I make a Pat Duffy part, if Pat's yeah. stoked on it, that's yeah. way better to me than 2 million views. We made it. Right. Like right. I want him right. to be stoked on what we did together. Right. And, and, and I don't know if that happens a lot in like, you know, corporations and it other doesn't, things. it doesn't. I mean, I think it does happen in ways in how people caught success the first time because passion's infectious, Right. So if you can feel that passion, it's easy to draft off of it. So I think a lot of things probably started with exactly what you're talking about, which is sort of, you know, filmmakers will talk about making a movie that they themselves want to see, you know, that they're not trying to make it for this big, broad audience that they're. And when you get in that narrowness of focus, the precision of what you're doing becomes very refined. 
And then most likely people then find that thing Mm -hmm. and people then feel that thing because it's so infused with that passion. So if you're really focused on that small audience and you're giving everything of yourself to get to that delivery point, there's going to be people in that audience that's a lot broader than you thought. And they're going to feel that same thing that you put out there. Right. my, My big long picture goal is to like, get all of my raw footage off my computers in some place where everyone can watch it and just let people see that stuff. I think that I don't intentionally mean to hold on to it, but there's so many sort of poachers out there that people will end up, you know, I mean, there's, yeah. there's my, my footage is on YouTube in certain instances has generated probably tons of ad revenue for people, but I'm not going to chase it down. Right. You know? Um, but I think that, there, that stoke, right? When you're talking about stoking out those specific people, you know, what we're a part of has those things that a lot of people, and as we get older, it'd be nice to be able to, you know, to give them back some of that stuff. For sure. Do you have all your tapes digitized? The majority of them. Yeah. I wow. still have about a hundred that I haven't, huh. but I think I have about. That's a process. <laughs> five, five, I think I have about 500 tapes digitized. Wow. Me yeah. and Mays always talk about hiring an intern. Yeah. It's it's just hard. It's just like, you know, the, the problem is as filmers, we know how undercompensated we were for the work that we were performing. Mm. So you feel a little bit bad not paying someone to do that work like an intern. Yeah. And then, but you kind of need someone super qualified who knows like, you know, that's Ron Kanigi, you know, not Johnny Shillereff. Right. You know what I mean? Like, you, you know, someone needs to know who it is. Um, sure. Yeah. My big, that, my big thing is just like, I have a friend who, who, yeah, basically shared my archive with, so that he knows what's in it. You know, because um, I think as we get older, that's the other aspect is like, you know, at a certain point, we'll, we have to kind of leave things for the next generation to be able to, you know, for them to explore it and discover it, so that they understand what this thing was. I yeah. think there's val- there's value there. Well, that's I mean that's a big part of why I do these little interviews for the podcast. I mean, hopefully yeah. they'll live forever and people can get little tidbits information from key yeah. people that were involved. I guess the last thing I wonder is do you have an opinion on movies? Are we are is the movie industry going to bounce back? How how does this happen? How do we not have the top five movies all fucking like Spider-Man? Like it's all yeah. Marvel shit like what what's going on and people are getting free streaming and all that stuff like yeah we we just saw indiana jones yesterday and we saw it on the imax and i was like i missed this so much yeah it was an amazing experience right so amazing yeah did you see avatar and imax no we we didn't yet it was that was like literally like nature porn for like it was like sci-fi nature porn for two hours and then it was like incredible action that like blows away every Marvel movie in terms of like, you know, Jim Cameron is a master craftsman. So uh-huh. you, the, the trick to incredible action is, you know, where you are in the world at every cut. Yeah. And the story is progressing, right? Dude. That's great action. And Spielberg, you know, obviously did that <sighs> blindly. Jim Cameron did that, but at Avatar, it was on another level. Um, huh. It's a, it's a weird thing. And I think it's related to that level of narcissism that I was talking about before. 
and the level of immediacy that has happened at the same time, which is, I want to watch something. Okay, I'm, well, I'm going to watch it. Hold on, let me find it. Oh, I can find it. Oh, let me watch a clip. Oh, I can watch a clip. Right. Well, now maybe I don't want to watch it because I saw a little clip and whatever. Oh, well, I'll watch it when I'm at home. So you're now you're sitting on your couch and you get yeah. a text and you go and you pick up your phone. It used to be, and this is not like, oh, the past, blah, blah, blah. It yeah. used to be that we didn't have the ability to have a screen that stimulated us on our phone. We would just maybe have a text. And then before that, we had a beeper. So you would go to the movies and you'd be like, I want to have this experience. Yeah. And so I think what one of the things that happened during the pandemic was that there was no movie theaters to go to for a long enough period of time that everyone said, well, fuck it. It's an effort to go to the movies. And then I'm in a, you know, a dark room with all these strangers and that brings about all these levels of anxiety in a certain moment of time that was very real for a lot of people. For sure. But then all of a sudden, all the movies that you want to see, they come right to your living room. So you're like, well, I don't need to make time for this thing. And then the Marvel movies have their own momentum. And I think mm -hmm. they start in earnest with Jon Favreau doing Iron Man and doing an incredible job with that movie. And it was really fun. Yeah, no, you know, I like felt, some of them. I just don't need for to sure. be grounding. Enough. But the problem is, is that the way that movies work in terms of the funding from the studios is they look at what makes money and they replicate that model. Right. Right. So they just replicated out that model. And then all the streaming platforms were like, well, let's just pay all the most prestigious filmmakers, the most money in the world to make these big movies and let's premiere them in your living room instead of a movie theater. Yeah. So what happened is, is the studios just released big blockbuster movies that really don't have much substance, but are kind of popcorn movies. And when, when we were growing up or even 10 years ago, you went to the movies to think you went to the movies to feel, I mean that Nicole Kidman AMC thing is corny, but I love it. And she's right. Mm. Like, you know, I remember going and seeing moonlight in the movie theater and what a beautiful movie in the soundtrack and the cinematography. And it kind of went in this direction that was, and you just like, you walked out, you said, that was a great fucking movie. Right. You know? So I think we've lost that desire as a society to be stimulated and challenged in the dark, in the way that, that we were when we grew up, you know, you would, my, my family would say, we got to go see Gandhi as a kid. Mm. Okay. We go see Gandhi. And, you, you sit in the movie and that, and, and it was a special experience. Sure. You know? So I, I think, I think what's just happened is that there's a reshifting of priorities. There's an instant gratification. And then I, I am a victim of it as well. I think we have a really hard time making time to go out and do things. You know, you, you, you had to make a plan, right? With your wife. You said, we got to go see this. Yeah. And you felt that way more than anything else in the theater in a while. Yeah. And you did it. Whereas it used to be like every week or every two weeks, you'd go see whatever opens that weekend. Yeah. And I think that we would try to do it more often if there was more options. I think that TV yeah. budget has really taken away from movies. because Now yeah. you got real high level TV. I mean, we just saw this show Silo and it was yeah. really crazy. It, yeah. You turned me on to what was that TV show? You turned Station me on. Station 11. 
No, it's the one where they're like they go into work. Oh, and severance. 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 Yeah. I mean, there's yeah. they're amazing. It, but by the way, incredible show. Yeah. So there's you know the bear, incredible show. Oh, yeah. Station we love the bear. Incredible show. Yeah. Watchmen, incredible. So the issue is like you're get you're you're getting nourished. Yeah, you're getting your fix. Like you're getting TV. your calories through TV, yeah. so that this so. So then the cinematic experience has to be reserved for this big thing, you know, but I still feel so strongly that it's such a incredible experience to watch something that you've never seen with strangers. That's just so rad. Yeah. You know, like remember, go I mean, we used to go to Century, you know, 10 in Mountain View. Yeah. I saw like every summer movie there. Batman, like, Batman, you know, returns, like whatever, Batman, you know, and, and Lethal Weapon, and Terminator 2. Right. And you're just in the theater with people, you, and everyone's screaming. And I still remember when that Mad Max, you know, Fury Road came out. I saw oh. that at the Arclight. Because that's the other thing is like having a theater that feels that communal. Right. You know, that you can just go to. And that theater is pretty close to my house. So I, I, I would see almost everything that opened there. And right. that's the best feeling. And you just know that's what you want. You're like, oh, I'm going to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood at the Cinerama Dome. Mm. You know, I'm going to see the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie at the Cinerama Dome. Yeah. So or Oppenheimer, we're definitely going to. A hundred percent. I think that I think the film projection find for Oppenheimer find the the 70 millimeter film projected version, and they'll say that on the ticketing. Okay. It'll it'll say 70 millimeter print. Yeah. Or it'll say like IMAX single laser. Right. And I, I would see the 70 millimeter print, but a hundred percent I'm seeing Oppenheimer in the theater. We just saw the preview. Yeah. Well, cool, man. I really appreciate the time you, you yeah, up dude. here. What, anything you're working on, anything that we should keep our eyes out for this hieroglyphic thing. What's up with that? I won't, I won't say too much because the, the form and the shape of all the things should, should kind of like come out and not to say they're, it's so prestigious or anything, but I'd like to preserve the like sanctity of when that is released. But, you know, I have a really unique history with, with that group and those yeah. guys and Dell and, and they become very dear friends of mine. And I was very privy and savvy to a moment in time that I think is very unique in skateboard culture and in hip hop culture. My rhymes is like dropping your head on cement. I'm working on a book project with all my ephemera and photographs related to hieroglyphics. And then there's another project that I'm working on with them, you know, interviewing them for that. I have to kind of, you know, get that to, to a good place. But I, I'm in the process right now of, you know, putting together two pieces of work, one on hieroglyphics and then one on my skateboarding life. Um, that really aims to be like a mixed media encapsulation with words and photographs and, videos and frame grabs and stills and ephemera that kind of helps shape a nuance or a context to that experience. So the high road thing will be out this year. Amazing. Um, I mean, by the end of the year. 93 till is just like in 93, we had no idea that in yeah. 2023, we'd still be praising it. But you kind of knew that they were, Ahead of the curve, Special. right? Yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure. Dell's like, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's my guy, man. You know, him and I connected deeply 
and have connected deeply. And I, I feel super grateful for that. And, you know, as I like look at that relationship, particularly with him, it's the same thing as with the skaters. Like I wanted to be in their world. Yeah. So I did an interview with Dell for Blunt Magazine that Ken Block was doing, you know, nice. I sent him photos, you know, and eventually I directed a music video for them. Right. You know? And eventually I went on tour with them and eventually I shot their album photos. So, so that's kind of the, that narrative of the book, which is that same, you know, ambitious skate kid fell in love with this group and found a way to kind of connect and be with them. And the book kind of unpacks that journey because all the music that I put of theirs in the plan B videos, you know, of course, skaters love that music. And in certain instances suggested that, but after questionable, it was like, I was actively saying, I want unreleased stuff that I can put in virtual, mm. you know, and I, and I was getting that music <laughs> and that was like, that's why I wanted it. Cause I wanted to have those tapes. At some point I want to pick your brain. I have this project that I need to make. It's mm. Phil Shaw, my dead friend. I just need to pick your brain sometime down the future about a, you don't want to let your friend down by making a subpar thing, but B, yeah. how emotional is it going to be for you, you know, and everything? I mean, I think it's worth talking about just for a minute because we're we're having the conversation now and you're sharing that with me. And I saw Whiteley recently and he said, he's. I told him we were going to talk and he was like, yeah, when is Schmitty going to do the Phil doc? He's been working on it forever. And, you know, I have a really, you know, big weight on my shoulder with Mike Ternaski's legacy. And one of the, you know, very fortunate things is that his daughter has come into my life. And for the last 10 years, I've mentored her and been an uncle to her and provided her a level of guidance that I don't think she would have had if I didn't come into her life. So I do feel like I've repaid quite a bit of the debt that I owe him through my support of her as she's been growing up and coming into her own. You know, she knew nothing about her father growing up until she was 18 and met me. Wow. And, you know, there, there, there's a crazy story about in my journal when she was born. I wrote, like, I hope someday you call me and ask me the man that your father was. And literally, when she turned 18, she called me. Wow. You know? um, so I've had all these machinations of films I want to make about Mike. And there's people that have been working on documentaries. And I'm working on a documentary project with her about her dad. And it stops and starts and all these things. And I think the thing that's important to stay in our conversation now is that you're going to think about what that thing is and you're going to create a false weight to the work, an emotional weight that may or may not be true, but it's false because you're not in it yet. So you don't know what it is. And the truth with any of those personal passion projects is you just have to start it and you have to trust that process. I suffer from this. If you think about something too much, you will convince yourself not to do it. <laughs> you will convince yourself that you're not worthy of doing it. And sometimes the most archaic, loose form of something is the best version of that. Documentary films could take any shape or any size. That's the beauty of documentary as a medium. Mm -hmm. And there's so many documentary films that you could look at that are so expressive about things that are hard to express. But if you just took 
90 minutes of footage of Phil and there was no narration and it's just footage going from the first time you filmed him to the last time you filmed him, maybe photos, maybe not photos, but it's just this textural journey with no description. I'm sure that would be really fucking compelling. (laughs) And I'm not entitled to say if that's right or wrong. But my point is that if you overthink it, then you're going to say, well, do I need to narrate it? Do I need to interview people? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? And the answer is, I don't know. And Mm. you don't know. Mm. But you have to kind of get to a point where you get to a place inside of yourself where you're not judging the intent. And then you just do it purely to do it. And then the form finds itself. Yeah. I I mean, my curse is I definitely overthink everything. And yeah. I, I think I'm my worst critic, you know, like I'm like, uh, so I think you're absolutely right. I think the anticipatory anxiety kicks in and you're just like, uh, but diving in to do it. It's just, it is scary to see what's around each corner. And when you don't know exactly how much of yourself you can put into this thing, but I'll tell you, Mark Whiteley, just for the record, I have not been working on this. Like it's yeah, no, not yeah. like seven years I've been working on this. No, I haven't you've been talking. You've been yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. the fact that it's important to you to do it. It's true. Like Phil opened up a lot of doors. He yeah. introduced me to Zawanich and the whole thing. So yeah, but but I will go back to a thing that Jim Thebo said to me, which is one of the greatest things anecdotal advice that I ever got. And it was when I was attributing so much of my success to Mike Chernaski. And I was saying, and you know, I was like, well, Mike did this and Mike did that. And Jim Mm -hmm. said, you have to be careful giving other people credit for what you did. Mm -hmm. The reality is you loved Phil. You loved him. You wanted to film him. You saw something in him. You, You are more a slash dog than me. (laughs) <laughs> you saw something in him that spoke to you mm. in his skating and you wanted to be around it. And so you would do anything that you could to film it. That's not anyone else. That's you. Right. So you have to put yourself in the alchemy of that. There's mm. a symbiotic relationship that filmers and skaters have. And a lot of times it's just the skater that gets glorified and sort of elevated to this position. And that's fine. Like they deserve that because that's why we're doing it too, is to put them in that position. But part of it is like your willingness and your desire to celebrate him. And I think you have to talk about it on the levels of love because you don't spend that much time doing something unless you love it. My advice on that would be go through the footage sequentially put down anything in a row first organize it by year so you actually have that schedule Mm. and then find makes bales sitting in the car innocuous footage and i would just assemble it so that you have every moment that resonates for you or anything that you watch where you go "Ooh, that was cool it could be he just looks out the window of a car It could Mm -hmm. be you're filming some old lady crossing a street while you were filming, but from that session. And I would say, I would bet that if you just assembled that 
in a timeline, however long that is, and you just watched that, you would begin to see your film. Yeah, you're right. And maybe you have a journal while you do that and you write down how you feel about it. Or you call me and say, hey, Jake, will you just interview me and ask me questions? And in, in you just start to create that dialogue. But right. I'm like, the more we try to explain things, the more we spoil the experience of feeling things. So if you go and say, I was the original person that received all this energy and I want to, as today, as my older mature self, I want to see what do I feel now and put that on the line. I'm like, that's really compelling. And don't worry about structure and shape and, oh, it's a fucking Sundance documentary or whatever. The reality is if you make something that weird and that unique, that is full of feeling. Yeah. That's, that's it. And who's to say that there's not an aspect that's like biographical about who you were at that time. And if you tell your own story and you have this collage of just footage of Phil that you filmed with your hands, that sounds like a really cool doc. And that's a doc that transcends skating because it's like, what is this? But we try to go, oh, what what are the people on Thrasher going to like? Fuck all that, dude. Mm -hmm. Like what honors Phil? Probably all the footage. Yeah, for sure. Because when hearing someone talk about someone, it was interesting when, when not to belabor this, but when we were making Waiting for Lightning, one of the criticisms I got was that Danny doesn't speak enough for himself in that film. And for me, I was like, well, D- Danny represents the, this collective consciousness of skateboarding, which is people who are driven through trauma to achieve great heights. And when Danny's talking about himself, not to say that it's boring, it's just kind of like it doesn't move the needle. It's mm-hmm. not that interesting. So it was more interesting hearing Tony Hawk talk about progression and then seeing Danny be progressive mm-hmm. and then hearing Rodney talk about adversity and seeing Danny push through adversity. So I think just, you know, you got to just trust your instincts, you know, and because that's, that's what, that's what, that's you. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, or fuck not. Dude, love you, know, you man. Like, thank you for yeah, you sharing too. so much time. I know yeah, you're NorCal you. forever. So even in LA, I don't want to see you wearing Dodgers or Lakers. Bro, just don't even that's here's a tribute to, to my NorCal roots. And I love that you called it NorCal. Because people are like, they don't call it NorCal, NorCal. Like, Fuck you. It's Frisco, Frisco, NorCal. Yeah, I've heard it all. Yeah. Like, like Coog Nut called it Frisco. So, like, get over it. Frisco icon, period. Yeah. Um, my, both of my kids are Bay Area sports fans. And that's gnarly. I get so much flack from people in L.A. Wow. that are friends of mine from L.A. They're like, why are you doing that to your kids? And it's like... <laughs> Well, we're winners. You know, they were born. My daughter was born in 2010. We got a ring. My son was born in 2012. We got a ring. Wow. 2014, we got a ring. 15, we got a ring. 17, 18, 22. I mean, we were blessed. My grandpa never got a ring. I heard about it every day growing up. Yeah. You know, and then we get so much. It's like kids don't. It'd be great to catch a ball game together for sure. Oh, yeah. If you are, dude, I'm seriously two blocks away. We we kayaked in McCovey Cove yesterday. It was so you fun. Did. Yeah. That's amazing. They're yeah. so fun right now. Yeah. It's so great to see. Yeah, if you're up here and you're gonna go to a game, hit me up. I'll meet you over there. For sure. All right. Thanks okay. again. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I Take appreciate care. the love and the interest.
I did. I'll text you. Later. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Schmidt. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. When you subscribe, you'll get notifications every Tuesday of new episodes the minute they become available. Also, please leave reviews and a five-star rating. It's the best way to help the show grow. All of the episodes will always remain free, but if you would like to help support the show, you can do so at TalkingSchmidt.com where you can pick up some merchandise like t-shirts, beanies, hats, and stickers. The website has an entire archive of all of the episodes with extra photos and videos. 
Email us with any suggestions, comments, or ways that the show may have improved your life at talkingschmidt at gmail.com. All interviews are conducted, edited, and produced by Schmitty. The intro music is Mary's Cross by the band Nature. A very special shout-out goes to the executive director, Cheryl Camisa. Shout-out. Love it! This is Talking Schmidt, where the Rolodex is deep, but the conversation is deeper. Keep the wheels greased.